Uh, brothers and sisters, friends, I'd like to draw your attention and your hearts back to Luke chapter 2. And thank you, Cameron, for a few weeks ago preaching uh, the last sermon in Luke. It was a, a labor of love, and I, I want to thank you for, for doing that. I'm thankful uh, that God has gifted and entrusted the men uh, to be able to, to preach God's word from, from the pulpit. Um, and this, this church isn't about Doug Payne or any other lead pastor, but God has given his church the gifts he need, he, that we need to, to continue on. So Luke chapter 2, you can open in your Bible, or you can scroll in your device, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Up to this point, we've taken eight sermons to explore the birth and the infancy of, of two people. Uh, the, the birth and infancy narratives of John the Baptist and... Jesus. And two things these narratives are doing for the reader is to show and to try to convince the reader that this baby, Jesus, is unlike any other baby ever born. But also that he is much like every other baby ever born. Does that sound confusing? Well, it is, and it'll probably get a lot more confusing. He is unlike humans. Jesus Christ is unlike humans because he is eternal God. He's always existed. But in his incarnation, in his coming to earth, he became like humans by taking on human flesh. It's crazy, right? And this helps us understand the overall theme of the book of Luke-Acts. Luke-Acts is one book with two parts. Luke is the sort of inspired theological biography about Jesus and what he came to do. He came to serve and save those who were lost. Uh, and Acts tells us that he accomplished uh, what he came to do and the beneficiaries of what he came to do became known as the church. And as the preaching of the gospel spread, so the church grew and it grew up. But Jesus becoming, being God and becoming man helps us understand the theme of this whole book, which is a combination of Christology, that's a doctrine about Christ, it teaches us about who Christ is, the Messiah is, the chosen one is, it teaches us about who Jesus is. He is God and man, truly God, truly man. But he... He didn't just come to be God-man. He came on a mission. The incarnation we just celebrated in December, his first coming, looking towards his second coming, Jesus' incarnation tells us that he came on a mission. He came so that Jesus would be Lord of all, so the gospel might go to all. Jesus came as God and fully man, truly God, truly man, so that he would be known as Lord over all things and the gospel might go to all people. And this is really good news. The gospel is good news of the reconciliation of God and man. And in order for this good news to go to all, God himself would have to step into this rebellious, messy world which we created with our sin. A mess which turned the world upside down. A rebellion that made a world that is always winter 
and never Christmas. Is that what last week felt like? It's not even Christmas. Like, what's going on with this? It's always winter and never Christmas. That's what our rebellion and your, your rebellion and my rebellion did. It turned this world into something that's monstrous. It's a world in where the first sounds of life are crying instead of laughter. Can you imagine a world where babies come into the world with cute baby giggles instead of cries of fear? I wonder if that's not the way it's supposed to be. This place is a mess, dear friend. And it will take, it'll take more than the courage and bravery of Jesus to change it. Not less than that, but it'll take more than that. It'll take the very wisdom of God to change this world from the way it is to the way God created it to be. And Jesus, Luke tells us that God entered this world, a world of cries and fears, but did not just enter it. He entered it as a human without sin. God entered the world as a human because, the God, because he was and had to become the God-man so he could change this world right side up. He entered the world, think about this, he entered the world through a womb he created. He came into the world as a baby depending on what he created. As God, he was sustaining the world the whole time while he was being born. I told you it would get more confusing. This is a world he would rescue while being nailed to a cross made from a tree he created. In order to do this, he would have to become, he would have to be God and become man. Remain God and take on human flesh. This is the wisdom that the greatest minds of every religion ever invented could not come up with. In order to do this, he would have to be eternal wisdom of God, and he would also have to become wise as the God-man. Luke shows this to us again in the narrative. Would you stand one more time for the reading of God's word? Hear God's word from Luke 2, verse 41 through 52. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. 
And his father and his mother, sorry, not his father, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So just an outline for this morning. This is a narrative. We're going to trace the narrative through these four key takeaways. We're going to see that God's wisdom in his family, in his house, in submission, and increasing in God's son. God's perfect wisdom put on display through the God-man, through God's son, in his family, in his house, in his submission, and increasing in God's son. Let's just take this narrative as it comes to us. And we, we see Jesus, who is God's wisdom. We see him in the context of his earthly family. And we see God's wisdom not only as Jesus, but we see it in the institution of the family. Now, this is not a sermon about the family. This text is not about the family. But I want you to notice that Luke draws out our attention to his family and this marriage as he finally points us to Jesus. Mary and Joseph are not a wealthy or known family. They are from an obscure town about 80 miles from Jerusalem. But every year, they take this journey, this three to four day trek every year for Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. And Passover is something kind of like a mixture of a religious celebration, the Exodus, which is, was religious, but also national. It's kind of like our 4th of July, and I'm not, I'm not saying anything other than describing it, okay? I'm just saying that that's what the Passover was like. So the city of Jerusalem would swell, and, and they would have national pride and, and religious pride going on. They were, they were celebrating God's work in them as a people, and as they would feast together, uh, they would remember that they were commanded, three, the men were commanded three times a year to go to Jerusalem to celebrate three festivals, and one of them was the Passover. And so they came, and, and the men were commanded, but families were welcome to come. And, and here is a poor carpenter's family with great cost to themselves coming to Jerusalem because they wanted to celebrate with God's people God's great work of redemption. They're, they're not a perfect family. Now, remember, Jesus is perfect God, and he's sinless man who is, who, who is growing in, in his understanding of who he is. And Jesus is truly God and truly man. He was, he, was, he was human like we are human, and he lived with very human, sinful parents, they, they are pious in the best sense of the word, that they were religious and they, they thought it was a heart religion, that, 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 that their hearts should be affected, but their actions should be affected as well. And they are, they're both finite and fallible, and this is the family that the Savior was a part of. He was, he was raised in this family who was imperfect and, and, and sinful and, and fallible. And it was, it, was their, it was their 12-year-old son, Jesus, who is singled out as going up with them. Now, Jesus is nearing the age of his bar mitzvah. That means, basically means son of the law. When he would 
become a son of, uh, uh, of the Torah. And, and in preparation, many families would bring their, their sons up to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of the rabbis and learn, and that's probably why Jesus was with them. But this, this very religious family, this family who believed and hoped in God, brought their, their family to Jerusalem to worship together, to celebrate God's redemption. And, and, and dear friends and family, I, I don't mean to make this a hobby horse for us, being that it's not about the family, but I, I, I want to point our attention to the fact that Mary and Joseph were trying to follow God's plan for their family. They had been commanded certain things. And you who are here today, I want to commend the work of Christ in your hearts, that you are here with your families or, or on your own, worshiping God, because he, in one sense, has commanded you to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And certainly there are times to miss church. But I want us to think, especially as families, what we should think about, what, what interrupts our worship of God with God's people? What, what takes us away from God's house on a regular basis? I know raising three young boys and a, a daughter, uh, the, um, the temptation uh, to have them in all kinds of sports all the time is real because they need it. Right, they need activity. If you have boys, or you grew up with boys, or you are a boy, or you know a boy, you probably know this: that young boys need physical activity, and it's good. Sports are good, and they're a good gift from God, and and they should be used in that way. The one thing I just want us to think about as God's family is: are, are sports or things like sports possibly drawing us away from the worship of? of God with his people. Um, I just read an article uh, this past weekend on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, it was an interview with the athletic director or director of athletics for Dort University, and he was saying why he pulled out his kids from club sports. And I, I listen, some of you are in club sports. I have nothing against club sports. I'm not trying to make a rule here. All I'm trying to do is help us think about how we can parent our, our children as, as, as God would have us to in the worship of God. And one of the things that he said is um, club sports or sports in general can be an idol, and we need to be careful about that. And let's just think about Joseph and Mary. They're living hand to mouth. They're, they're living in, a, in, in, in poverty. So to take a few weeks off from work was a real trust. They really had to trust the Lord that this is what God wanted them to do. And to come to worship him, to, to, uh, to, to see the Passover, to, to, to display in the sacrifice that, that God saved his people through the shedding of the blood of a lamb. This was teaching not only themselves, but their children. And even, even Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, here he is. The, the only time we get to, to see about Jesus' preteen life and before he was 30 between his infancy and his, 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 his ministry, this is the only brief encounter we have with, with, with what 
who Jesus was and who his parents were. And here, here they were bringing their son to the Passover, which displayed the very thing he was headed towards. Uh, did they know? I don't think they knew that he was the Lamb of God that was going to take away the sins of the whole world. They, they knew something, but they didn't know everything. Friends, when, when we miss church, this gospel-centered gospel fellowship that points us to the good news of the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, we're not doing ourselves any favors. Again, I'm not trying to make a rule that you can never miss church. What, I, what I'm, I'm trying to get us to think about is what does take us away from church and has that become an idol for us? And Jesus is, is on his way to Jerusalem with his family. He's there. They have worshiped at the Passover and now mom and dad head back home. But they leave Jesus at church. If you grew up in church, some of you are smiling, but if you grew up in church, you may have been left at church. Anybody ever left? It? Yes, okay, some of you. I was left at church before as well. I was never left at church for the reason Jesus was left at church, though. There's this twist in this story. Jesus gets left, and, and uh, mom and, and dad, you know, at, at, they're a day's journey on. I don't know exactly, but a day's journey in, and they realize, wait a minute, Kevin! No, you know, where, where is Jesus? Where, where is he? And I could see Mary being like, Joseph, this was your job. And Joseph's like, I thought he was with you. And he's like, I didn't know. And, and so they, they come to, and they're, if you are a parent, you realize how anxious and guilt-driven you actually feel about this. You left your kid, and you traveled the whole day and didn't know about it. And so Mary and Joseph, it says, Mary says to Jesus, we've been anxiously looking for you. And they were anxious, that they were searching, and, and it's not necessarily really actually their fault that um, oftentimes the little children would, would travel with the women, that's just how it went in their culture, so the little kids would have been with Mary, and the older kids were with Joseph, and at 12 years old, Jesus was kind of in the middle, and, and, and so like what, you know, it, it was an honest mistake, there was no intention there at all, and, and here they are, a day's journey out. You have to make a day's journey back, and they spent a day searching for them. The commentators are sort of confused why it took so long, because Jerusalem is small, and uh, a three, days, uh, th three days was probably more than enough. And, and certainly Jesus asked them the question, why were you looking for me? This 12-year-old in the city, what, what would an average 12-year-old do left alone in a city? I mean, home alone kind of helps us think about that, right? Uh, but Jesus was not an average 12-year-old. Jesus was in this busy city, and I've racking my brain thinking about, okay, he's there for three days. He had to sleep somewhere. Someone had to feed him. Friends, it was just a different culture that, that took in other people with no thought of, you know, uh, no thought of the of the cost to them or, or what, it, what, what it meant. They didn't call the police, you know, blaming the, the parents for child neglect or anything like that. They just took them in and, and, and we'll take care of them until the parents come. And if they don't come, like, that's okay. We'll, they'll, he'll be our child now. That's just the environment that Jesus was in. And he's there in, in the temple, in the synagogue, reasoning with the 
the, the teachers of the law. Now, dear young friends, most of them are up in class. Parents, tell your kids I talked to them this morning. You are not too young to learn about God. Jesus was 12. A, d- a dear former pastor of mine said that some of the most spiritual people he has ever known have been 10 years old curious about the ways of the Lord and not ashamed about what they believe, searching the scriptures and asking questions. You're not too young. Parents, your your kids are not too young to learn about Christ. They're not too young to have a daily habit of reading their Bible. Even if it's a few minutes a day, they're not too young to pray. They're not too young to talk about Jesus. In fact, it's It's when we get a little older and a little more self-conscious that those questions start to shut down for us. Friends at the branch, let's let's explore those questions and and invest in the lives of our kids, of our own kids and in, in each other's kids. This is, after all, what God created them to be. Jesus is the young 12-year-old God created all of us to be when we were 12, or a 12-year-old that you have. Listening, sitting in the, in the synagogue, listening and asking questions about the Bible. But I think the climax, you would think the climax of the story was, oh no, we lost Jesus. And the resolution was, ah, we found him. And if you listen to some sermons, that's what it is. But I don't think that's the climax of the story. I think the climax story comes to us in verse 49, God's wisdom in God's house. Here they finally find him. And Mary says, she kind of reproaches Jesus as every mother probably would do to any of their kids, which every father would do to, what, what are you doing? Where, why? Why? Don't you know what you did to us? I almost had a heart attack. And Jesus' response to her is so interesting. Why were you looking for me? There's no hint of condescension in Jesus. There's no hint of rebellion. There, there's, no, there's no hint of, like, if your kid said this to you, you'd be like, do you know who I am? Like, <laughs> we're about, it's got to go down right now. <laughs> but not with Jesus. He, honest question, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And Jesus, as he's sitting in the synagogue and the scriptures are being opened up and he's asking questions, which you should be doing as you're listening to the word being opened up. And as he's, as he's asking questions and he's, he's thinking about it and he's asking more questions and he's, he's listening, he's coming to the self-revelation. He's coming to the revelation as a 12-year-old boy, as any other 12-year-old boy would be. He's coming to the understanding, this whole book is about me. And Jesus expected his mom and dad to have known that. They're already the parents. Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business and this is my father's business? I had to be in my father's house. This is my, literally the, the, the words here say, I had to be about the things of my father. So that's why there's a couple different translations. Yours may say, in my father's house. Others say, about my father's business. Jesus had to be about the things of his father, and the things of his father were to learn about him. And Jesus had to learn about himself. He had to come to the revelation of who he was. He had to learn that. 
Jesus needs to, needed to ask questions if he is God. And you say, why would Jesus have to ask questions if he is God? If he's truly God, doesn't he already know all this? Yes, as God, he did know. However, as a man, he had to learn. He was true God and true man. He had to learn this as a man. The Westminster Confession of Faith is helpful for us here. And it it says about Jesus, Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This is who Jesus was. He was of her substance. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That's the only way Jesus could be the mediator between God and us, mediating our redemption and reconciling us to God, is if he was both perfect God, eternal God, and truly human. He had to be. There was no other way. Only God could take the hand of God, could take hold of God, and only man could take hold of sinful man and reconcile the two. As God the Son was Lord of all, as man he would become Lord of all by learning and growing in the knowledge of God. The only way to do this is to listen, to ask, to learn. Friend, all the wisdom you need for salvation and for life is found in Jesus. He's the perfect display of God's wisdom in this world, the perfect display of how God is going to reconcile man. He teaches us all that we need for life and godliness. That's, that's not to say you don't need to go to school because you're a Christian. That's ridiculous. But what we want to say is that when you go to school, you should not leave Christ and his wisdom at the classroom door. When you enter the classroom door, you take all of Christ and his wisdom, all the wisdom that you know with his spirit into the classroom with you. You don't leave it at the door. Christian, when you go to the count, your counseling session, we do not leave Christ and his wisdom at the door. Is Christ and his wisdom found in the Bible. We don't leave it at the counselor's door as if the counselor has something to offer that the Bible has nothing to say about. God's wisdom in God's son is that he came to be about the things of his father. And the primary thing his father wanted him to do was to give his life as a ransom for many. And as, human, as a human being, he had to learn about that. He had to learn about his father and his father's will. As a perfect man, someone who never sinned, he didn't forget. He, he, not unintentionally or intentionally. And I, I know that we intentionally forget things. You want to know how I know? Because I have kids. But even if I didn't have kids, I would know because I intentionally forget things all the time. Hey, honey, I thought you were going to clean the kitchen instead of watching Sports Center. I forgot. 
right? That's, that's what we do. And you know, you laugh at me, but you do the same thing. Oh yeah, I forgot. But you didn't really forget. We forget not only unintentionally, but also intentionally. Jesus never forgot, and he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, increasing and increasing as he learned by sitting, listening, and asking questions. They were all amazed at him, both his parents and the teachers of the law. Friends, this is what childhood was created to be like. I'm not... I'm not trying to say that you should never forget things. What I'm trying to say is you, you should not want to forget things. I, I think we think of Jesus like, well, he's a perfect man and I'll never be like him. So, so, uh, but Jesus is the, is the 12-year-old that we were all created to be. And parents, I think we have too low of expectations for our children sometimes. I know I do. Maybe you don't, but I know I do. Maybe sometimes they're too high, but most of the time, I think for us, we're too low if we're, if we're honest. We probably give far too many excuses to our kids. I know I do, and, and quite frankly, we give those excuses probably because we think too much of ourselves. Go, <laughs> nanny Netflix, go, go ahead, I, I need a break from you. Go play video games. Listen, I'm talking to myself, okay? I'm not, I'm not just talking to you. Let's... Me, I'll start with me. Let's repent of that and encourage our children to be like their Lord. Kids, doing God's will is the greatest joy you will ever know. Learning about him, asking questions about him, reading about him, finding about, out about him in his word is the greatest joy you'll ever know. And you're not too young to know God, to have a relationship with Jesus. You're not too young to read your Bible and pray and tell your friends about Jesus. Friends, for the gospel to go to all, Jesus must become Lord of all. And as man, he would do that through his, through his, through his life, in his family, and in his father's house, but also in submission to his parents. Now we're going to be wrapping it up. We're going to be moving quicker here. So in verses 50 and 51, we see that Jesus had to submit to his parents that were imperfect sinners, Jesus, as the, the perfect son of God, but also perfect man, was in submission. Now, submission has become a bad word, partly because uh, people in authority have used it wrongly and have made people submit against their, against their will. But submission here, in this context, is, is not a bad thing at all. Every one of us has imperfect, sinful parents. If, if my kids were in here, I, maybe I would have heard an amen from the pain household. But it's true. Uh, we all have in common with Jesus imperfect, sinful parents. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. And Jesus uh, ha- had to live with a, a, a family that... Um, that sinned against him and sinned in general, but sinned against him not only as a human, but as God. And here he is in verses 50 and 51. We see in the, they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth 
and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus, who is perfect God of all, submits to the will of his parents, which he was to do. He was to honor his father and mother. Most scholars and historians tell us that Joseph probably died when when Jesus was a teenager at a young age, and Jesus had to take over the carpentry shop and the business, and so in many ways, Jesus was submissive to the, the will and the needs of his family, and he was, he was right there taking over for Joseph. It's probably one of the reasons, maybe one of the reasons we don't hear about him is, is he was learning the will of God through learning this trade as a carpenter. So submitting to the needs of his family. <laughs> Not demeaning work at all, making furniture, carving wood, and all the things that a carpenter does, Jesus was doing. Jesus is here, submissive, both to his mother and father, and then after his father died, he would take the head headship of the family in, in many ways, and, and, and what I want us to see here is that submission is a, is a beautiful thing in this way. And submission is is. Even in the, you look it up in the dictionary, it's, it's often described as someone forcing someone else against their will to submit to them, but that's, that's not a biblical view of submission. Submission in this way is submitting to the authority of another person, the God-given authority of a, another person. And in God's wisdom to reconcile God and man, God gave Joseph and Mary authority over his own son. We should have no problem paying our taxes or submitting to evil authority when the Son of God could come and submit himself to all kinds of authority like this. Jesus submitted to his parents knowing that he had it, but he knew he had a primary responsibility to his father. I must be about my father's things. And from 12 to 30, the things of his father were to submit to his parents, work in the carpentry shop, and take care of his family. Maybe that's an encouragement to you. You who feel like you're stuck in a dead-end job or don't know where you're going or you, you feel like you, you, you don't know what's next for you, the next step for you is to submit to God in the silent years. To submit even sometimes to unjust authority. To submit to imperfect authority like Mary and Joseph. The wisdom of God is that he would become a man and learn just like we learn. But the way we are always supposed to learn, Jesus learned the way we were always supposed to learn, always increasing in wisdom and never taking a step back. And that's what we see in verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. You know, the two great commandments, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. What's the second is just is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Here Jesus is increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was the human you were meant to be. And I was meant to be. He was the human the first Adam was meant to be. The first Adam 
made from the dust of the ground to, to rule over the creation, to have dominion over it, not in a, not in a sinful way, but in a, in, in a way that presents it back to God as an act of worship. He's supposed to lead and be a priest to his, his wife and his family. And instead of doing that, that first Adam, Adam of Genesis 1 and 2, he abdicates his role as the, the king and the, the priest of, of, of the world that God had made. And he decides to eat the fruit that God had told him not to eat. And Adam and Eve plunged our world into the mess I talked about earlier. It's because of Adam and Eve and, and their sins and sins that we inherited from them but do very freely ourselves that plunge this world into the upside down world where babies cry and don't laugh when they come into the world. He was supposed to be the wisdom of God, Adam. He, he, was, he was supposed to rule this world with wisdom, uh, in relationship with God and man, the way it was meant to be. But it plunged the world into sin. And we wonder, how is it going to get back? And the people of the Old Testament heard the promise of the, the son who would come to crush the head of the serpent and, and do away with sin and death and hell forever. But who would it be? Who would be wise enough? And Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 4, tells us the kind of wisdom that is needed. It says, my son, my son, my daughter, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Don't let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And that should remind us of this very verse, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It should remind us of verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. What kind of wisdom would it need to reconcile the world back to God, this kind of wisdom? that writes faithfulness and steadfast love on your heart and bind them around your neck, even at great cost to yourself. In this world that it's messed up through sin and the only hope that we could get back a relationship with God that had been broken is to regain wisdom. But friends, it is not our wisdom or Adam's wisdom or Noah's wisdom or Abraham's wisdom or David's wisdom or Solomon's wisdom. None of them ever gained enough wisdom to save this world. Only one. There was only one son who would fully and finally and perfectly bind the wisdom, the love and faithfulness of God on his heart around his neck and take it all the way to the cross. It was Jesus. And that son cried out to God, my father, why have you forsaken me? In order that you would never have to be forsaken. That's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God in, 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 in the gospel is that God would become man, fully, truly God, truly man, to take on the sins of the world, that he may reconcile man to God. 
And this is Jesus. The 12-year-old Jesus was displaying this very wisdom as he said, I must be about my father's business. I must be in my father's house. Dear friends, as we behold the wisdom of God and his family, the wisdom of God in God's house, the wisdom of God in submission, and the wisdom of God increasing in God's son, let our hearts be thankful that this wisdom was used to reconcile us back to God. And let us rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would, by your wisdom, use these words to make much of your son. Help us now as we think about the wisdom of God in forgiving our sins. And let us not question that wisdom. Let us fully run to all the wisdom you have for us in Christ as we think about forgiveness of sins and the table. May you, will you help us to look to you and be satisfied. In Christ's name, amen.